Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, says God. Father, thank you so much that we can gather here today in your presence. Thank you for Robin. May you just bless and tie together what he has studied and where he has sat with you on the word over um, these last days. Use his words and the meditation of his heart and also speak to him in whatever ways you see fit, Lord, that you will get to us, that you challenge us, that you bless us, that you spur us on. And thank you that your word is alive, and thus it's going to change our hearts. Bless the servant of yours, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, over the last uh, month, we've been looking at St. Paul Union Church's uh, purpose statement. We started out with, to glorify and enjoy the one true God. Then we looked at our calling to grow together in Christ-centered faith. And then last week, we talked about giving grateful service to God and to people. And this week, we're finishing off with to go and share Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Actually, we're just going to talk about the first part of that statement, to go and share Christ, because in January, we'll be starting a series on the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And at that point, we'll get onto the I am the way, the truth, and the life, because that actually deserves an entire sermon all to itself. So we'll do that. Now, when it comes to um, going and sharing the Gospel, there's actually an abundance of passages that we could um, look at for that, because every Gospel has one at the end. Uh, Mark 16, 15 says, He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Luke 28, sorry, Luke 24, 46 to 48 says, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be, will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. John 20, 21 to 22, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Acts begins with one. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It might surprise you to learn that that passage in John, as, I, as a father says, as a father sent me, so I send you, um, was actually the core text for mission for 1,700 years in the church. Um, and yet, if you do a, do a scripture, a search for mission these days, it very rarely comes up. That's because one of the unfortunate side effects of the, Revo of the Reformation 
was that the church forgot it was called to go and uh, preach the gospel. The Catholic Church was okay on that. This is the, the Catholic Church has used that text for over a thousand years. Um, it wasn't for another 150 years until William Carey in uh, 1792 uh, wrote his little book with a long title, A Humble Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians for the Use of Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. Um, Seriously, that's the title of the book. <laughs> that's not the content. That they, anyway, um, so that he he anchored his call to mission in Matthew twenty-eight, and since then, that's been the the, the most common place to anchor calls for mission evangelism. So much so, it's now called the Great Commission. At least has been since the end of the nineteenth century. So that's the passage we're going to be studying this morning. Matthew 28, 16 and 20 to 20. At the beginning of the silver chair, which is uh, um, one of the Narnian Chronicles by C.S. Lewis. How many people have read Narnian Chronicles by C.S. Lewis? Oh, good. All the teachers on this side of the, <laughs> on this side of the, <laughs> the room uh, really encourage you to read. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful stories. Um, so at the beginning of the silver chair... Aslan gives Jill Paul the task of finding a lost prince. And to guide her in her quest, he gives her a series of signs. And he issues this solemn warning. He says, here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia... The air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. Remember. Remember the signs. Much of the time, the job of a preacher isn't actually to say anything new. Uh, actually, I think it was Augustine that said, if true, not new, if new, not true. Um, <laughs> um, much of the time, the job of the preacher is simply to remind people of what they already know, what they already understand, and what they are already attempting to live up to. And Paul certainly felt that way. Uh, Romans 15, 15 to 16, he writes, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. And Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. So, even though many of us know this passage really well, and I'm sure that some of us have spoken on it more than once, um, it's still worthwhile to be reminded of what it says. In the days before easy international travel, or even before you know, long-distance telephone calls, when someone left on a journey to a distant part of the world, their family wouldn't necessarily expect to see them again, or even perhaps hear their voice or hear from them again. And that was certainly true in the days of the British Raj. I lived in Pakistan for a number of years, um, and... Uh, Rory Stewart, some of the Brits here know who Rory Stewart is. Um, 
He points out that no matter your, what your opinion is of the Raj, the British Empire in India, uh, you have to respect people who would leave their homes in Britain and go out to India to serve and never return. Like many of us go back home every summer, right? That's, that's quite often. This, this place empties out kind of in the summertime. It becomes a hollow shell. No, not quite, but lots of people go go home wherever that might be in the summertime. But um, even, what, even 50, 60 years ago, when you left to go overseas, that would mean four, five, six, longer, perhaps, before you ever even had a chance to return home. In Ireland, when people left to emigrate to North America, they would have what they called an American wake, you know, you know, awake is awake. An Irishman once described me, uh, awake is a party you have when someone dies, which doesn't quite sound right. But anyway, um, but awake is a, a celebration of someone's life at their home. Uh, it, but they would have what they called an American wake, which was awake for the living. One writer says, for the vast majority of those who left, it would not only be the last time that they would see each other, but in many a case, it might be the last time they would even hear of each other. Due to the vagaries of ocean travel, the uncertainty of life in a new land, with little reliable communications, especially for the poverty-stricken and often illiterate immigrants from Ireland. It was a very solemn time, with the awareness that any words that passed between you and the person leaving might be the last. And there's something of that feeling in Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Jesus has been crucified, buried, he's risen again from the dead, and now, just for a short while, he appears to his disciples in various places in Palestine. But each appearance might be his last. The disciples don't know how long they have Jesus with him, with them. And anything he says may be their, his last words to them. So these appearances have special importance. And they take place all, you know, they take place in various places. But Matthew 28 takes place in Galilee. Verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came near and spoke to them. When Jesus wants to commission his disciples to carry on the work that he, does, he began, he, he, he does it in Galilee. It would have been much easier to do it in Jerusalem. I mean, after all, that's where they were, right? Um, that's where they were after the resurrection. But... No, Jesus has them hike all the way to Galilee. That's about 100 kilometers as the crow flies. Further on foot. Maybe three or four days walking for the disciples, who after all, had spent the last three years walking around Palestine and were in pretty good shape, right? So why would he do that? Why wouldn't he, you know, meet with them in Jerusalem? I mean... After all, Jerusalem was the place where Jesus rose from the dead. 
But it was also the place where he faced his stiffest opposition and the place where he was crucified. And the one thing that is clear uh, in all the post-resurrection appearances and um, in Jerusalem and the area around Jerusalem is that the disciples were afraid. They met in rooms with the doors locked because they were afraid of the Jewish leadership. That's not a good frame of mind to be in when you're going to be challenged to take on the world. But Galilee, Galilee was a whole different kettle of fish. Because most of the disciples were from Galilee in the first place, right? So when they went back to Galilee, they were on home turf. But more than that, Galilee was where Jesus's, most of Jesus' ministry took place. It was where he taught and healed and delivered people. Even more than that, it was a place from which the disciples themselves had been sent out as part of a larger group in pairs to copy Jesus' ministry. And they had come back from that short-term ministry experience totally punked. Luke 10, 17 says, The 72 returned joyously, saying, Lord, even the demons submit themselves to us in your name. Years ago, the founder of the organization that Merrill and I are part of was speaking to school leaders about, you know, running schools, how to run them, stuff like that. And he talked about the outreach which comes after the school, three-month outreach after the school. One of the things he said was, don't send the students to the hard places. You go to the hard places. Send the students to somewhere where God is at work, where they can experience being part of a move of God and being used by God. And that experience will do more than anything else to change them into effective ministers of the gospel. And that's what Jesus did with his disciples in Galilee. And that's probably why he brought them back there, to give them their marching orders, to give them their commission. There, amongst the very places where they'd seen Jesus doing great miracles and had even experienced God working miraculously through their own lives, that's where Jesus is about to give them their commission. So he begins by telling them, I've received all authority in heaven and on earth. That's quite a claim. All authority in heaven and earth. Jesus doesn't elaborate on how he can make that claim. He just does. But we can get some insight from what others say. In Acts 2, 32 and 36, Peter says to the crowd, This Jesus God raised up. We are all witnesses to that fact. Therefore, let all Israel know beyond question that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Then again, Acts 4.10, Peter says to the Jewish council, You and all the people of Israel need to know that this man stands healthy before you because of the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Salvation can be found in no one else. In Acts 17.31, in Athens, Paul says, God has set a day when he intends to judge the world justly by a man he has appointed. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
And then when he writes to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesus 1, so Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, he says, God's power was at work in Christ when God raised him from the dead and set him at God's right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority and power and angelic power, any power that might be named not only now, but in the future. Jesus' authority is based on this. But so far, he is the only one who has gone through death and come out the other side. That's where his authority lies. He's the only one to have experienced resurrection. He is the first fruits of the kingdom. By raising him from the dead, God has shown that Jesus is truly his son and worthy of all authority. And that's important. That's important because when we share the gospel with people and encourage them to come and follow Jesus, it's important that we're, doing, we're not doing it just because it's a good idea or it's our preference. Asking someone to follow Jesus isn't the same as asking them to check out the fettuccine at Castle Restaurant. Even though the fettuccine at Castle Restaurant is really good, I recommend it. But it's not the same thing, right? We seek to introduce people to Jesus because through the resurrection, he has been authenticated as God's only son. And as Peter says in Acts, salvation can be found in no one else. So our proclamation of the gospel is rooted in Jesus's unique status as a risen son of God. And he's the only one who can lead us through death and into eternal life because he's the only one who's gone that path before us. When Leslie Newbigin, one of the truly great missiologists of the 20th century, was bishop of Madras, that's now called Chennai, um, his house was halfway between the airport and the city. So uh, often when visiting pastors or missionaries or priests would come, they would stop off at his house on the way into town to have lunch. Often, people would ask him, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the church in India? To which he had a standard reply. He would say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore the question doesn't arise. In regards to a fact... One is not optimistic or pessimistic. One is believing or unbelieving. The future of the church, whether it's in India or Turkey or the Middle East or any other place in the world, is in the hands of her risen Lord, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. It's not in our hands. It's in his hands. And because it's in his hands, that's the context for his command, which comes next. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. A more literal translation is going, make disciples of all nations. Because the command here is actually to make disciples of all nations. It isn't, as has often been preached from this text, to go. Just as when your mother told you to go and clean up your room, the focus of that sentence is on cleaning up your room, not going, right? You just go to your room and sit there. She's not going to be happy, right? 
So Jesus' call to every believer is to be involved in making disciples. And the geography of where that happens is actually secondary. One of my pet peeves, I've been in cross-cultural ministry for a large chunk of my life. One of my pet peeves is when, you, when, when we go home, people tend to put full-time cross-cultural workers on some kind of a pedestal. Some kind of you know, spiritual super people. Trust me, I'm not a spiritual superman. While I, I, on the other hand, have been find myself challenged by the faithfulness of many of those same, those same people as they seek, out, seek to live out their discipleship in their own context. What's important is not where you serve. What's important is that you serve. That wherever the Lord leads you, you're seeking to be a disciple and to make disciples. A little while ago, I, was, I read a little book called 131 Christians that everyone, everyone should know. Um, it's this collection of short biographies about theologians, preachers, and evangelists, but also writers, artists, poets, politicians, people like that, who were Christians and had a lasting impact on the church or society. And there's a theme that kind of runs through a lot of these biographies, and that is that you know many of them were born and raised into Christian homes, and they were Christians, but a turning point came in their lives when that changed from being a label to being something more. And I can identify with that. Um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I became a Christian in my teens. But it was a number of years after my conversion that I came to realize that God was calling me to more than just church on Sundays. That he wanted me to be a disciple. And part of that discipleship was also to be influencing others to be disciples and to grow in their discipleship, pointing them towards Jesus. I used to think that discipleship was some kind of program. And um, so I bought all kinds of books on it. That's my basic response to anything, you know, is find a book on it and read it. Um, I've got books on all kinds of things. I would make lists of things to do, and I'd do them for a while, and then most cases I'd fail to maintain them. And that's because discipleship isn't a program, it's a relationship. And I don't mean that in the way that many people go, you know, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. I mean that in the sense that whether or not someone is a disciple is defined by their relationship to Jesus. Dallas Willard is really helpful here because when he talks about discipleship, he replaces the word disciple with the word apprentice. And that, having a background in engineering and uh, having a, a brother-in-law who's a machinist, um, that, that works for me because an apprentice is defined by his or her relationship to the tradesperson that they're working under whether a mechanic or a carpenter or a machinist or whatever, because it's not just about head knowledge. Being an apprentice isn't just about head knowledge. It's all very well knowing how an internal combustion engine works, but it's not very helpful, because I know how an internal combustion engine works. 
I can tell you, you know, explain the, the four-stroke the four, um, cycle, that kind of stuff. But I can't take one apart. Well, I might be able to take one apart, but I couldn't put it back together again so it works. And that's the difference between just knowing something in terms of head knowledge and having your life shaped by a calling in the way that uh, an, uh, a machinist or a mechanic or a carpenter is. That uh, I, have, I have a friend back in, in Canada who is a, a wonderful mechanic. And I, I, I just love watching people doing, doing things when they know what they're doing. It's just a joy to watch journeyman tradesperson at work. Because being an apprentice, being a disciple, isn't just about head knowledge. It's also about behaviors and skills. It's about allowing our lives to be shaped by our calling. And what Jesus is calling us to be is people who model our lives on his in the same way that an apprentice models their life on their master's. Of course, once you're a journeyman, you can train others, and you basically reproduce yourself in other people's lives. But our calling isn't to reproduce ourselves. It's, although to a certain extent you can't avoid that, it's actually to reproduce Jesus and others. Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians 4.19, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's... Our goal in this calling to make disciples is to see Christ formed in others. I'm a teacher. That's what I do. Um, you know, if I want to know something about something, I read a book on it, and then you know, I'll you know, I'll teach it. Right? That's what I do. Um, Marilyn said, "Robin, you can teach anything." Uh, um, but there's more to making disciples than just, just teaching. There's modeling. There's walking alongside. When I was pastoring in Canada, I came up with uh, a one-sentence statement about what my goal was as a pastor. It was to equip and release people into their God-given callings, to celebrate them when they succeed, and to catch them when they fall. To equip and release people into their God-given callings, to celebrate them when they succeed, and to catch them when they fall. I think that's a pretty good definition of what it means to make disciples. You have input in people, but you don't leave them there. You walk with them. You celebrate them when they do well, and when they mess up, and we all mess up, you catch them, and you set them on their way again. So if discipleship is about following Jesus, then disciple-making is about pointing people to Jesus and helping them to follow him in the same way. Leslie Newbigin again. Um, he's one of my favorites. Uh, we actually, when we were at college in England, Leslie Newbigin came and spoke uh, at the college. This was in 1989. And um, I was really impressed by this man 
who was such a huge influence in the world of missiology, just sitting down with the students all afternoon, drinking coffee and talking about all, answering questions, such a humble man. Anyway, one of my heroes. So he called the church the sign of the kingdom. And one of the important things about a sign is that it points to something other than itself. If we're the sign of the kingdom, then we don't point to ourselves. We point to something other than ourselves. And our, our lives should be pointing away from ourselves and pointing to Jesus. So that's a good question to ask ourselves. It's, you know, it's nice to have questions to kind of measure things. Where is my life pointing? If people look at me, where am I pointing? Because it doesn't matter whether you're working in an office, teaching in a school, working in someone's home, studying at university. It doesn't matter whether your Turkish is good or like mine, terrible. Uh, I'm not proud of that. I'm really embarrassed by that. It doesn't matter whether you spend most of your time with Turks or most of your time with foreigners. Whether you have a tourist visa or a work permit, whether you're like me, I'm retired officially. Uh, <laughs> Your calling, our calling, is that our lives should point away, to our, away from ourselves and towards Jesus. The other thing, of course, about a sign is it can't help pointing. You stick, you stick a road sign in the corner at a crossroads, and it's there whoever comes by. Always pointing in the same direction. It doesn't disappear when certain kinds of people are, you know, turn up and then pop up again when other, other kinds of people turn up. No, a sign is there. It's always pointing in the same direction. It always says the same thing which I think is, speaks to us about integrity and transparency. Are we the same person, no matter whose company we're in? Can people always see Jesus in us? So Jesus starts by talking about his unique status as the risen son of God. He t- goes on to give his command to go and make disciples. And he ends with a promise. He says, I myself will be with you every day until the end of the age. A while ago in my devotional times, I was focusing on God's presence. The Bible has a lot to say about that. 23rd Psalm says, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me. It doesn't say there won't be any danger. It doesn't say that everything will always be rosy. It doesn't say that our lives will be easy. But it does say that whatever happens, God is with us. Psalm 139, 18 says, when I awake, I am still with you. Because God is always there, even when we sleep, even when we're not aware. And that's his promise. And that's Jesus' promise to each one of us. That as long as this world lasts, he is with us. So Matthew 28, 16 to 20, is one of those passages like John 3, 16, um, that can become almost too familiar But these are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples. They're definitely definitely his last words in Matthew. And in him, in them, he reminds us of who he is. The risen son of God with all authority in heaven and earth. He reminds us of our calling to be always pointing people towards Jesus. Helping them to live their lives in obedience to him. And he reminds us of his continuing presence with us every day. It's good to be reminded of these things as we seek to follow him. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we are honored, Lord, that you call us to be your disciples. We are just overwhelmed with your grace, overwhelmed with your love towards us. Lord, we don't always point towards you. We recognize that. There are times when we point towards ourselves or towards other things in our lives that have become, that have become distractions. Help us, Lord. Help us to recognize those times quickly and to turn back towards you that our lives might not just be pleasing to you, but also be a direction, a sign directing people towards you. Give us grace, Lord, as we walk alongside people, as we encourage them. Help us, Lord, to be open to, to learn from those who are just young in the faith. So often they see things so much more clearly than those of us who have been around for decades. And most of all, Lord, thank you for your presence with us, that we can trust you to be here in our midst, in our lives, empowering us and directing us. In your name we pray. Amen.